Okay. So, yeah, okay. So we are back in 1 Samuel this week. And Andy, we are in 1 Samuel, second chapter, oh, roughly verse 16 or so, somewhere right in there will do. Because we're in the story of Eli's wicked sons. So, just to go back a little bit, you know, I'm a teacher, so I like to review. So remember Shiloh, the place where all this is happening, is in the center of the, of the land, of the land, of the promised land right there, convenient for all of the tribes. And this is a representation of the city of Shiloh at this time with the walls, and you can see the tabernacle in the back that the um, uh, arrow is pointing to, and this is the tabernacle itself. Okay. The most relevant part of this is to grasp, as I've said, I'm going to say it again, and it's something that's really hard, hard for us to get, um, was for me, that the Jewish religion at this time and in Jesus' time was very different from the Jewish religion of today. Judaism at the time of Samuel or at the time of Jesus is built around the tabernacle and then later the temple, built around the priests and sacrifice because the tabernacle was God's dwelling place with his people. The temple was God's dwelling place with his people. Um, in fact, maybe we should do this. Go ahead, let's, let's together turn to Exodus chapter 40. I'll tell you a verse number in a minute. I don't know the verse number. I just know the chapter. So find Exodus 40. I'm working off an iPad today. Exodus chapter 40. I'm going to go to the uh, very end of the book. So it's Exodus 40 verse 34. So in Exodus, God gives the Israelites the blueprints for building the tabernacle. In addition, he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. People know a lot about the Ten Commandments being given, but they don't focus so much on the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is the dwelling place. So what you have happen in the book of Exodus is that God gives them the blueprints, the instructions for building it, and then they build it. And God's Spirit it helps the artisans and the laborers construct this tent of meeting surrounded by basically a fence with certain um, big pieces like an, an outside altar large enough to cook a cow on, okay, as part of the, uh, the system of priests and sacrifices and offerings. So now it has all been built. We're at the end of the book of Exodus in verse 34, and it goes like this. Then the cloud, this is the cloud on top of Mount Sinai. You remember when they get to Mount Sinai, there's a cloud and thunder and lightning on the top of the mountain. Now what is that? That is signifying the presence of God. God isn't a cloud, but it's called a theophany. T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, a theophany. And it signifies the presence of God. It isn't always big and spectacular like clouds and thunder and lightning. Sometimes, as Elijah discovers, it's a still, small voice or the sound of sheer silence that Elijah encounters at Mount Sinai. But in the book of Exodus, it's this cloud, okay? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tent. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. It's so filled with the presence of God that, that um, Moses can't even get in the door. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud from, lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of Yahweh was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, because a cloud is hard to see at night, right? 
in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So that's just saying that, remember, if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know that it is God who leads the Israelites out of Egypt in this big, glorious pillar of cloud and at night fire and leads them to Mount Sinai. Well, they're still going to follow God because God is the one in charge. God is their king. God is the one in charge of this. So that tabernacle is, the, is what is in Shiloh. Okay? And it's probably not in the best repair. Andy? Did all the major cities have a tabernacle? Did all the major cities have a tab tabernacle? No, no, no. There was only one. One, only one tabernacle. There, there, in Jesus' day, there was only one temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. That was it. They would, in other places, they would meet in like what they came, the Greek word for a meeting place, a synagogue. They would meet in a meeting place, a synagogue, but the temple, the temple, or now at this time, the tabernacle, which is, the tabernacle was a movable tent. The temple is the tabernacle rendered in limestone and permanency. But if you, if you ever see a, a picture of the, of the temple, it's built on the same basic plan as what you're looking at. Well, let me go back here. What you're looking at here. If you saw, maybe next week I'll bring, I'll bring a picture of the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day alongside this and you'll see the similarities instantly. Instantly. Okay? But there's only one. And so a good, righteous Jewish man, if he was able, was supposed to come um, to the tabernacle slash temple three times a year for the festivals of Passover, um, Pentecost, and um, uh, booths in the fall. So they moved the tabernacle and it's been here in Shiloh for several hundred years. So when they moved it, did they move all the, the altars and the... Oh yeah, it all. And when you read the instructions about them, they're all built to be carried. Have you seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Do you see them carrying the ark with the poles running through the side? All of that is laid out in the book of Exodus. The poles with the rings so you could put them through and they could carry it. Yep, yep, it's all built to be nomadic. Yes, sir. He did not. He dies on Mount Nebo. Isn't this in the promised land? Yes. But it says Moses couldn't get in. This is back at Mount Sinai. They go to Mount Sinai. They're given the law. They head for the promised land. They chicken out. And then they are forced to wander for 40 years. Okay, so that's the tabernacle. It looked like that in Shiloh, but that one was probably somewhere out in the desert while they were wandering around. No. Start over, start over. They built it at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They erected it at Mount Sinai. They would have to take it down and roll it up like a circus, right? And they would have to carry it to the next place and then they would set it all up again, right? And then they would go on and set it up again and then they would go on and set it up again. It ends up in Shiloh. And the reason it ends up in Shiloh is because it is in the center and all the 12 tribes have pretty much the same access to it. But the thing is, it really probably hasn't been well cared for. And it's now entrusted to Eli and to his wicked sons, right? And um, we don't know how much it was even used at this time, really. You know, as Christians, we kind of think that it's all on a straight line. You got the tabernacle and then the temple and they got the books of the law and it's, it's not all on a straight line. These things would fall into long periods of disuse. One of the striking moments in the Old Testament happens about 620 years before Jesus when they discover the book of the law. And the king comes in and he tears his robes because he knows that they had lost it. 
They didn't even know that they had lost it. Right? So, so don't picture these things as all these nice, neat things. The Ark of the Covenant, in the time we're reading here, is um, in Shiloh, in the Tent of Meeting. A couple of chapters hence, they are going to lose it. They're going to lose it. Thank you. Yes? When Jesus tipped the tables over, is that like where these slaughter tables were in Jesus' day? Yeah, I mean, the, the, Jesus is working in the hair, huge, I'll bring pictures next week, but the huge Herod courtyards and everything. So it's really, picture it more as being the, the, a big outer area here that they, is where the buying and selling is happening. Probably not inside the immediate the fence most surrounding the temple. I'll bring pictures, but yeah. But it's the same idea though, you see? So you have to connect the tabernacle to the temple. And what happens to the temple? Why does Judaism change? Why is Judaism today vastly different from the Judaism of Jesus' day? Romans tore, it down and it Romans tore it down. They tore down the temple and it's never been rebuilt. Right? And so the religion had to change. And so it became a religion of what? Rabbis, synagogues, the study of Torah, because Judaism could not remain a religion built around priests, sacrifice, and the temple. So when, when we have Jewish synagogues around here, why are they called like temple evangelists? I don't know. They do, but they don't sacrifice animals there. <laughs> you, you would just have to ask them. Ask them. I, I don't know. You know, I always joke around and say, I know a lot more about first century Judaism than 20, 21st century Judaism. So, ju I, but they do. But they're, they're, they don't have priests. They don't have <coughs> animal sacrifices. The sacrificial system and the priestly system ended when the Romans destroyed it. And so what's the, let's connect a dot or two. So what do the Christians, how, what's the Christians view of this? Well, of course, of course the Romans did because you couldn't have a sacrifice that could be better than the sacrifice Jesus made. You couldn't have a high priest who would be better than Jesus. That's, that's really like the heart of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a very Old Testament oriented book, making the case that with Jesus, we don't, they didn't need any of that stuff. It's no wonder it's all gone because it, everything was fulfilled in Christ. Scott, I have a question. Yes, Patty. So this tabernacle, like you said, could be rolled up like a circus, but we know in Shiloh, it stayed the longest, almost yes. 370 years. Long time. That's a long time for something that is, um, you're folding up. So obviously they must have remade this lots of times. My second part is why why Shiloh? We've been there. We've seen it. Right. I, I, why did they choose to stay in Shiloh for almost 400 years? With the tabernacle. With the tabernacle. Because of where it is geographically located, all the tribes could get there. It's in the center of the promised land. Um, it's in the, there, there, there's a big ridge line that runs down the center of Israel, um, and it is in that ridge, on that ridge line, and um, it's roughly in an area that is accessible as best they can make it to the tribes up in the north and the tribes down in the south. Don. You said three times a year uh, a good male Jew would visit. Uh, I mean, that would be thousands of people there. Yes, yes. So. So what do you think in a tiny place? So do you think that, do you think they were doing that at the time? Probably not. Even in Jesus' day, you know, there were many, many Jews who did not live in Israel and they couldn't make the trip, right? But many, many tried. That's why, um, for example, in the beginning of the book of Acts, um, when the Holy Spirit's going to come on them, it's Pentecost time and there's all these foreigners in town. And who are all these foreigners? Jews from other lands, generally on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, who, have, who are coming to, to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Um, it's not something they could do. 
Now Jesus, on the other hand, you see, is from where? Nazareth. And they could make the journey. And as a righteous Jew, he would have made that journey. And he would have been trained in that and trained about their role in the temple when the family brings their sacrifices by Joseph and his uncles and and so on. But for many Jews, there were many Jews at Jesus' time who did not live in Israel. There was a big Jewish community in Alexandria. They're all the Jews that Paul meets, <laughs> sometimes get beaten up by when he begins spreading the good news about Jesus in the mid middle of the first century. Okay? Yes. Okay, and what is that word? The cloud. the cloud is a theophany, and I'll spell it slowly. It's a very good word. T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. Thank you. And a theophany is a manifestation of God. It isn't God. It's a manifestation of God's presence. It's showing you that God is present in a way that he is not normally present. And when they go to Mount Sinai, it's the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and don't touch the mountain and all this other stuff that happens at Exodus. When Elijah runs away from Jezebel and he heads south and he heads back to that same mountain, there's this wonderful passage where it says, ah, God isn't in the thunder and God isn't in the earthquake. He hears the sound of sheer silence. And that is the theophany that Elijah, that, that expresses to Elijah that Elijah is, you know, that God is being manifest in the sound of sheer silence. And when, the, when in your Old Testament prophets or others encounter one of these theophanies, they are overcome. They don't really know how to describe it. It's not describable. Their feelings, what they're experiencing. They try their best because they have to express it in words, but they're in touch with what one famous Christian theologian coined the numinous, the numinous. The aspect of God that is beyond reason, beyond vocabulary. Okay? Yes, theophany. Anything else? That's how he led uh, Moses also with the, with the fire in front of him. Yes, so when, so, so the pillar of cloud, the, pil the, the cloudy pillar that led Charlton Heston and the rest across the Red Sea and out into the land, that's a theophany. At nighttime, it, it's a pillar of fire so it can be seen, it's a theophany. So in the Old Testament, there are these various theophanies that express, express the presence of God. In a way, in the New Testament, when it says that at Jesus' crucifixion, it gets dark at 3 o'clock. You know, and you have pictured in your mind all of this darkness and the clouds and the rest of it. In a way, that is a, that's, a, that's a theophany. Okay? So yeah, so it's a good word, good word to know. It's not even a $10 word. Yes? And an easy question. In the New Testament, when Jesus dies, mm -hmm. it says the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Could you show us? Sure. Let me go back to my little, I'm glad I brought the diagram at least today. <laughs> happy days, happy days. Okay. Well, I don't know how good your eyes are, but there is a number three. Can you see the number three sort of maybe? That is a curtain that separates the front portion that has the furniture in it. By the furniture, I mean the table where God's bread is kept, where the menorah that gives light is kept because it's God's dwelling place, okay? There's a curtain there, and behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. And that is, place was called the Holiest of Holies. And the high priest would go in high priest only, would go behind the curtain once a year to offer atonement for the sins of Israel. And on that one time a year, 
which you and I know because it's Yom Kippur, goes in there on Yom Kippur and offers atonement for the sins of Israel, um, that's the only day that people would go back there. In the book of Exodus, it works a little differently. Moses goes in there to basically talk with God because the top of the chest of the Ark of the Covenant, it's a, it's a chest, it's a box, are two um, cherubim that face each other with their wings touching. And that is, that's, that's like, that's like the portal into God's dimension. And Moses would meet God in this tent of meeting, as it's called could be this tent of meeting, and Moses would meet God there. And one time he comes out, and his face is all radiant and aglow. Why? Because in a way, in a way, that's a theophany. He has been in the presence of God, and he comes out just glowing. There's, it, it, it used to be mistakenly translated as Moses having horns. That's why you see statues of Moses sometimes with little horns, and I've been asked, well, he looks like the devil with those little horns. Well, I guess he kind of does, but that's all because the Vulgate has a poor translation. It's not horns, he just comes out a glow. Why does he come out a glow? Because he's been in the presence of God in a way humans aren't. In a way humans aren't. And, and so, of course, of course, it, 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 he's changed by that. You know, the glow fades away. There's a sermon there, I think. Um, <laughs> right? So, okay, so anything else? You see, this is why we do the classes, and I love this. Yes? Am I correct the ark has never been found? Well, it could be in a Navy warehouse. <laughs> right? Yeah, or Army, Army Warehouse. No, the Ark has never been, no, the Ark has never been found. What's the, what, you know, I, when I come to questions, I want to have a hypothesis that is simple and explains the most data possible. So what's the simplest idea about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the simplest one is that when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem after besieging it for two years, or longer in a deep and abiding sense, almost, almost six years, they just took it. It was part of their treasure. And they took it back and they melted it down because it had a lot of gold in it. And it's, it's just like if you go to Rome today, there is the Arch of Titus very near the Colosseum. And it is an arch that was constructed to celebrate the Roman victory over the Jews in the Jewish rebellion of the late 60s and early 70s. And if you look at the sculpture, the carvings, uh, it's really a relief on the inside of the arch, there's a wagon pulling what? Filled with what? A menorah. In fact, many suppose that the Colosseum itself was paid for by the treasure taken from the temple in Jerusalem. That that's what created the money to pay for the Colosseum because the temple was destroyed in about 70 and the Colosseum is done in about 80 AD. Every capital project needs funding, <laughs> right? Right? Okay, anything else? Okay, that's, that's great. I, I, I love the questions. You can, that's, that's what we do here. This is a place you can bring all those little questions you've had over the years. Let yeah. They did. Okay. So Ben is asking about what does it mean? Can, can I rephrase that? What does it mean, Scott, when you say that this is God's dwelling place and God is present here? Does it mean he's not somewhere else? No. The, the Jews didn't think they had God captured in this. They just believed that God dwelt with them in a way that he did not dwell with other people. That's, that's how they saw it. They, they, they did, the rabbis didn't think that, you know, God was, God, they, they wouldn't think that God could be contained in that way. 
God's presence in the temple meant that he was present with these people in a way that he was not present with other people. And why was he present with them in a way that he was not present with other people? Because he had come to Abraham and said, I'm going to... God had a big problem. He wanted to reconcile humanity to himself. But he's, God is not a God of the magic wand. It's going to happen through through us humans. And he came to Abraham and said, okay, Abraham, you're the guy. Don't ask me why Abraham. It could have been somebody else. You, Abraham, are the guy. And I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you descendants, and the families of the earth will be blessed through you. All the rest of this is the outworking of that project. So when you are, work, when you are reading your Old Testament, you always have to keep your eye, a little bit of your eye, on the larger project. Because the larger project is that God is undertaking to rectify the wrecked relationship with humanity that they wrecked in the garden and to renew creation um, because they, the human rebellion against God even takes creation down with it. So always, always out there, keep in mind this larger, this larger story, this larger picture, narrative of, of, of what God is doing. Well, they, they weren't called that then because the name comes from the son of Jacob named Judah. That's where the name comes from. And it's kind of later. They're, throughout most of the Old Testament, they're called the Israelites. The closer you get to the end of the Old Testament, the name Jews enters in because of the tribe of Judah. It, yes, but it's simply Abraham's family, right? Just as I could go back in time and find some great, 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 great predecessor going back 2,000 years, 3,000 years. I'm in the line of somebody, I think, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so so when, when Matthew opens Jesus' genealogy, well, how does he do it? He starts with Abraham because you see Jesus is part of that family and that family is the one who is the one whom God has chosen to work through. Okay, and you might think that was all just big happy, happy, happy. Aren't we lucky? No, there's a dark side to being the chosen because they knew what sin was. They knew what it meant to be faithless to God. Other people were told that the Ten Commandments were not given to the world. The Ten Commandments were specific to the family of Abraham, the Israelites, and later called the Jews, earlier called the Hebrews, the family of Abraham. How would you become part of that family? Even for them, it was about God. Because you see, Ruth, is a, she's not from the family. The DNA of Abraham does not flow in her veins. She's from Moab. She's not an Israelite but she becomes part of the family because she devotes herself to God. It's always focused upon, it's always focused upon God. Okay? Anything else? Wicked sons? Okay. Wicked sons. Eli is the father and he has big problems in his own right because he is there in charge when his sons are doing these terrible things. Now last week we read about the sons' desecration of the animal sacrifices of people. That people were bringing their animal sacrifices. The people wanted to offer their best portion to God. But instead, the wicked son said, hey, hey, I want the filet. You take the ground chuck to God. I want the filet. <laughs> That's the picture. Okay? And, and of course, it's, it's written differently because it's from a long time ago with practices that we only guess at some. But I've got to make my way back with you, baby, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um... 
Okay. Look, well, let's not go to 12. I, I mean, it's, that's, that's in the middle of the meat section, the, you know, where they're abusing the offerings. Look at verse 17. We'll just pick up there. Verse 17. And is everything still rolling? Chapter 2, verse 17 of 1 Samuel. Finally there. This sin of the young men, that's Phineas and Hophni, was very great in Yahweh's sight, for they were treating Yahweh's offering with contempt. Woe be on to you who treat God with contempt. Or, his, or this offerings that people make to God with contempt. Um, for us today, we don't bring animals forward to be sacrificed, but we do contribute our time and we contribute our money. And none of those givings should be handled with contempt or misused, right? So it's one thing to embezzle funds at EDS. It would be a much more terrible thing to embezzle the offerings that people make in a church. You see what I'm trying to say? Now, verse 18. But Samuel was ministering before Yahweh. He's a boy wearing a linen ephod. So he's still a little kid. He's going to be a little kid for a while in this, in this story. A linen ephod. Now... I looked through my closet. <laughs> I couldn't find any ephods. Do any of you have ephods hanging in your closet? Dillard's? Anybody got? No. Probably not. But I brought a picture of an ephod. So the ephod, this is the, the high priest wore an ephod. The ephod is the yellow garment. It is like a sort of a tunicky type thing. It's not a full, an apron. It's not a full garment. Okay? Um, but it's just part of his outer, outer garment. And the boy wears an ephod, signifying what? Signifying that he has been dedicated to this priestly service. In keeping with the promise that, that Hannah made to God. So the boy has been, he's participating. Now what does that mean? He's learning. Sure, okay. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Okay? So why does she have to make one every year? There you go. You are smart people. <laughs> Man, no, can't slip anything by us, can they? No. So Eli, the high priest, would bless Elkanah and his wife, this is Hannah we're speaking of, saying, quote, May Yahweh give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to Yahweh. So we're heading to the answer to the question that was asked last week and I wasn't sure about. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So in total she has six kids. Four sons, two daughters. First son, Samuel, she is dedicated. Now she goes home, and over the next coming years, however long it is, she has more children. Scott, yes? In my version, it says, uh, the seed of the woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. Because the... the, the, the that's right. It's sort of like the Nazarite vow that we talked about, that... If you took the vow of the Nazarite and laid out in the book of Numbers, it wasn't a permanent thing. didn't have to be. I guess you could make it permanent, but it didn't have to be. Um, indeed, in Judaism, they dedicated their firstborn sons to God. And the way that worked is they would go to the temple. I'm going to talk, use the word temple. They would go to the temple and they would dedicate their son, their newborn son to God and then redeem him back with a small offering. And that is what is recounted in the book of Luke about Jesus. In the book of Luke, there are a couple of stories about the baby Jesus crammed together. One is his um, consecration, his handing over, and his redemption. And the other is his circumcision. Those were both rituals 
around newborn children. And they recognize what? That God is, God is the giver of life. Ah, that we would remember that. God is the giver of life. Yes? I think she does. She does. But it, okay, so it, but that's an interesting, because I never really focused on that before. So that raises, for, in my mind, an interesting theological question. Does God, would God want Samuel to stay in God's service when Samuel doesn't want to as an adult? I don't think so. Well, Hannah is willing. Yeah. Hannah's willing. So she says, you know, for the rest of his life. But if Samuel were to, were to reach the point, which he doesn't, if he were to reach the point where he wanted a different life, you know, I guess he could do that. Because I don't think God takes prisoners. Right? God is love. Love is not built around taking prisoners. The God I meet in the Bible is not a God who takes prisoners. He calls people, he summons people to his service, but, and as evidenced here by this translation of the Hebrew, King James, which is not the best. I mean, it, the, because, because it's just, they, they, it was just so old that they just don't have what we have now, and the words don't even mean the same thing. The English words have changed so much. Um, so, okay. So Hannah's got six kids. One, Samuel, who's at the temple. And look at the last sentence. Meanwhile, while she's off and the years are passing and she is giving birth to other children, the boy grew up in the presence of Yahweh. Right? This is Samuel. He grew up in the presence of Yahweh. He grew up in the temple. Verse 22, now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent meeting. Meet tent of meeting, no! What are they doing? There are women, obviously, who are working in this whole system and the two sons, Phineas and Hophni, they're, they're having sex with them. Is that a good thing? No. It's a bad thing. Do we know exactly what the women were, what their work was? No, we don't. So where does Eli live here? Outside of this area? Yeah. 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 Unless he could, he could, he could pitch a cot, uh, pit, pitch a cot, I think, inside the tent. You know, we don't, you know, the, the, all we have to work with is what? the scriptures. So you have to take these little pieces and try to piece together a picture. But this, I, I, like, I like this drawing. There is the tabernacle up there and there are buildings around it and you have to make some inferences when you read this about kind of what's happening where. Which I do because I like to imagine the story that I'm being, I'd like to picture these people doing this, okay? But this is a big problem, okay? They have treated the offerings with contempt, and now they're having sex with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So we, verse 23, so Eli said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Phineas and Hophni. Now, I don't know anybody named Hophni. Do you? But there are Phineases. The most famous Phineas that I know of is P.T. Barnum. His first name was Phineas. And I asked myself, well, why the heck would you name your child after Phineas? Well, turns out there's a good Phineas in the book of Numbers, who's like a son or grandson of Aaron. So this is the second Phineas to show up, and I sure hope the parents had in mind the good Phineas as opposed to the bad Phineas. Okay, because this Phineas is, 
in big trouble, all of which he is bringing upon himself. So verse 24, he says, No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people, it's not good. If one person sins against another, somebody else, you know, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? I mean, it's one thing to sin against your neighbor. But when you sin against God, you know, who's going to step into the middle of that? You're sinning against God. You're holding God in contempt. Holding God in contempt. His sons, however, did not listen to their father. Big surprise there, huh? He tried. He tried. Has he dismissed his sons, though? No. So, I, I lost my place because I'm I, I, trying to get used to this iPad, which is easier for me to read, but... Okay. All right. Verse 25. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was Yahweh's will to put them to death. Well, that always brings Christians in my day up short. Now, what is going on there? What is going on there? What is going on there is that God is going to leave them to their own ruin. The picture in the Bible is that God's grace is extended to us all. Indeed, um, uh, John Wesley called it God's prevenient grace. It's the, it's the interceding grace. It's the preceding grace. It's the grace that enables any of us to come to God. And the story repeated, Old and New Testament, is that if you insist, insist upon remaining in your sin, God may just take his hand of grace away and you, you will take the consequences of your own actions. It happens in the New Testament with the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. It happens in the Old Testament. It's a way to understand the story of Pharaoh when it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart and then God hardening his heart. That God takes away this restraining hand. Um, it isn't that anybody would ever come to God and say, oh God, I repent, and God refused that. Of course God is not going to refuse repentance. Of course God's going to forgive sins for people who repent. But if someone insists upon following the path of their destruction, God may well let them stay on that path, and that's what's going to happen to Eli's sons, Phineas and Hophni. It isn't that God has to smite them. You know, that's kind of the image I grew up with a lot, you know, God smiting. But I could show you passages in the Old Testament. There's a marvelous one where God simply says to Ezekiel, Oh, the sins of Israel. Oh, the sins of Israel. Their sins are going to turn back upon their own heads. We, we don't need God to smite us. There are plenty of consequences of human sinfulness and wickedness. Nothing good happens after midnight, I've been told. <laughs> right? So, so that, that, that's a much, much more biblical way to understand this. Because if you tend to see God as the great smiter, you have to reconcile that with Jesus. Because Jesus is fully, completely God. So, sure. Do we have a, a progressing revelation of who God is? A progressing understanding of who God is? Going back to the world of Conan the Barbarian and leading all the way through um, to the time of Jesus. And Jesus being then what? The full revelation of who God is. The full revelation of who God is. You can never find yourself saying, 
well, God did this. Jesus wouldn't do it, but God did it. Right? That's nonsense. Jesus is God. What God does, Jesus does. Of course. And the Father and the Holy Spirit. The will of, the of God is the will of the Father and the will of the Son and the will of the Spirit. In my Sunday class, we're going to get to the Athanasian Creed before I even leave town on vacation because I can't wait. Athanasius did a splendid job of helping us to grasp the truth of the Trinity that we kind of want to divide apart. So, God is neither a moral monster nor a vindictive bully. We often are. Don? So, are we to imply that God was working through the, through the, the, the young man's father to get them to change the way they would not change the way. Like we would talk about addiction today with a, a, a drug etc. So okay. many people want to help, but at a point Okay, so Don's making a, a good 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 point here. Okay, so are we to see that God is working through Eli to 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 bring these sons back from the path that they are on? And I think the answer is yes. That's what Eli's warning to his sons. He says it's kind of like addiction, even in our world. Uh, families and loved ones will work with the addicted person until finally they just can't, right? And, and um, yeah, there, there's, great, there's great sadness around it. There's a great sadness that anybody would hold God in contempt right, would think so little of the temple of God that just to view it as a place to hang out and party um, as these sons do, it's just, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Oh gosh, I'm going to run out of battery here. This is a very old iPad I'm using, so I may end up having to switch iPads and lose the screen, but that's okay. I don't have any more slides. You already, you already saw the ephod, okay? So, verse 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. So what's happening here in, as the narrator is telling the story of Samuel? Constantly lifting up the boy. He grew up in the presence of the Lord. He grew up in the eyes of other people of being this, 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 this devoted, good um, uh, servant of God in contrast to whom? Phineas and Hophni. Darn right. This, this person's a good storyteller. This is, this is, you know, you got Phineas and Hophni, they're a wreck, and then you have little Samuel who's growing up, and he will have to make choices about what he does. Everybody does. We all have to make choices about how we live our lives, about what we do. Um, what am I going to do today? What kind, am, I, am I going to try to walk in God's path today, or am I going to head off on my own? Well, Phineas and Hophni have headed off on their own, and they are long gone. To the point that they are willing to abuse the offering, to abuse the people, in addition to abusing the offerings that are brought for God at God's dwelling place. Okay? Uh, yes? Samuel had no relationship with his two brothers? They're not his brothers, first. Um, oh, you mean with the brothers that Hannah has? Okay, okay, which gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, I don't think we ever hear about them. I don't, I think we're supposed to think probably not much because they come up like once a year for the annual sacrifice, so how much could there be, right? Hannah probably tries to, you know, to, you know, have them watch a Cowboys game or something together to, you know, so they can bond, I don't know. But what is Sam, who is Samuel? He's a young boy who from his birth has been dedicated to God's service. He will be the last great judge of Israel and the first prophet, 
But well, I'm moving past Moses. Moses is a prophet, but this, this great prophet, this great judge of Israel, and he will be the one whom God chooses to anoint the first two kings of Israel. Okay, so, yeah, thanks for that. So, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So, now, God sees what's happening. And God is going to come and tell Eli what lies ahead. And it, it you know, it, it doesn't take, what's the proverbial phrase? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see where this is going with Eli's sons. And this happens through a man of God, a prophet of some kind who is coming, not named. There are many in the Old Testament at this time and later. There are many, quote, men of God. These are wandering prophets. Don't know much about them. Many of them aren't, aren't named. But in this case, he has, he's a man of God, period. And he, he comes to Eli. Just take that at faith value, face value. He comes to Eli and says to him, quote, this is what Yahweh says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? See, because they're all part of Abraham's family, Charlotte. So I chose your ancestor out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, because Eli is the descendant of Aaron, who is the head of the priestly line to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Because the Levites, the priests do not have a land of their own. They don't, they don't participate in the division of the land. They are supported by the other tribes. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? God knows that Eli shares in this guilt. Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. They get the fillets, I get the ground chuck. Okay? Therefore, this is still the man of God speaking, God's word. Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, <laughs> you figure Eli's hair is standing on end at this point. Can you imagine some guy walking up and he's got, I always picture him sounding like, sort of like James Earl Jones or something, right? He's got this, I promise that members of your family would minister before me forever. big theological point, things change, even for God. But now Yahweh declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although goodwill will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Whoa! <laughs> so what happens is, sure, you know, it takes a while but sure enough, there's this priest called Abiathar. This isn't the time of David. We'll follow that story. And Eli's line comes to an end. Comes to an end. And this is a declaration about what is coming. That doesn't mean you have to run around. They'll think that you would run around and find every little person in the line of, of, of you know, Eli and and. Did they live to be a certain age? That's not, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is God is saying, look, I, I made a promise to Aaron that it would be his family forever, but you've wrecked that. You've wrecked it. And you're going to bear the consequences of that wreckage. You've wrecked it. God hasn't wrecked it. 
Eli has erected. Wow. Now, has, I'll just speculate, has this been building for a while? With the priestly line and the tabernacle? I would guess so. I would go, I would guess Eli didn't spring out of nothing. I would guess his sons didn't spring out of nothing and everybody but all the priests before them were pure and utterly faithful. I don't think that's how things work. But, but God acknowledges that he made a promise to Aaron that he could not keep because Aaron's family has not kept their end of the deal. That, in a way, that's the essence of the problem that God has with the Israelites in general. God made big promises that, to them at Mount Sinai that God would like to keep, but God can't keep because of the faithlessness of the Israelites, which is the story from beginning to end of the Old Testament. So how does God how does God, what does God do? God will supply, God will provide for a faithful Jew who will keep the covenant entered into at the foot of Mount Sinai by Abraham's family. A Jew who will love God and love others every day and in every way and that Jew's name is Yeshua, born to Mary of Nazareth. That's it, in a nutshell. Verse 34, And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. And indeed, a couple of chapters later, they do. They will die on the same day. I'll give you a hint about what's coming. The ark will be lost. Sad days. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. God isn't doing away with the priestly system. God established the priestly system. It's just that the line of Aaron has become faithless. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my mind and heart. Wow, that's a big line, isn't it? Who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 12 to connect the dot. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what the will of God is, so that you will know what is pleasing and good and mature and complete. Think Paul probably could have written so that you will know what is in the heart and mind of God. You can know these things. They are knowable to us. We just have to set aside our own pride to hear God clearly, clearly through the pages of Scripture. I would send you this week to Philippians chapter 2 for one of the best places in which you would find see what the heart of God is. Okay? So he says, um, I, I will raise, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Now that anointed one here refers to in the immediate picture Kings. It's a royal term. An anointed one is a king. Kings were anointed. In Hebrew the word is Mashiach. In English it's Messiah. Jesus will be the, what, like the ultimate anointed one, the final anointed one. Maybe like, how could you have a better, how could you have a better king than King Jesus? I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. And everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. I guess 
Eli leaves this encounter with the man of God with the firm understanding of the consequences of what he has allowed to happen. Even, even to being, even to his line being removed. Perhaps, perhaps because of the promise God made to Aaron, they just took it for granted. Hey, that's nothing to happen to us. I can go back and you know look at that scroll. I can find look at the promise God made to Aaron. Sure, let's do what we want. Let's do what we want. Let's be partying priests. And, um, you know, but, but no, what, what does God want from anybody? Jesus answered the question, what are the two greatest commandments? What does God most want is a way to, to, to render that. That we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength from Deuteronomy and that we would love our neighbor from uh, <coughs> Leviticus. And Eli and his family, and I'm guessing some of those before you, they've just made a wreck of it. And Hophni and Phinehas have made a wreck of it all. And you're, you're at that point in 1 Samuel, you're going, well, wow. What's God going to do next? And you figure it's going to have something to do with this little boy you keep reading about named Samuel, right? And indeed it will. And next week, <laughs> we. That was my watch talking to me. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I love my little Apple Watch, but she says strange things at strange times. <laughs> okay? So when we come back next week, we're going to. I don't, I don't even want to begin this story. We're going to begin the story of God calling young Samuel to his life's work. It will be his life's work. He's not going to turn away. He will, he's going to call young Samuel to his life's work. It is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And I don't want to start it and get halfway in. And besides, it's still raining and we're almost done here time-wise anyway. So that means I have time for a question or two before I close this. Yes, Sharon? Yes. And who is that said about? That's said about Jesus and Luke, right? Absolutely. And right. You get these connections, and it's not an accident because the authors are are making the connections under God's guidance they are making these connections you know one of um, uh, a book I read a long time ago was by Richard Hayes and it was all about not just the quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament but all the echoes and the allusions to it and it isn't surprising because if you were a Jew in the first century or wanted to begin to understand Judaism in the first century the place that you would begin is the Hebrew Bible, which is the same as your Old Testament. We have so many television programs to watch and movies to see and books to read. They didn't. What did they have? They had stories told around campfires and they had scrolls and writings. And not a lot of those. So it, it's like if you went back to the American prairie of the 19th century, what book did people use to learn to read? The Bible. You know, people of that time knew the Bible stories in a way that we just don't. They would see the connections. That's why if you go to Wesley's day and you read Wesley's sermons, his sermons are just all these snippets of scripture just woven together. You would have to know scripture pretty well to know about that. By illustration, on the last time I was liturgist at 9.30 and I wrote the pastoral prayer, I wove through two different passages of scripture into the prayer. I don't know how many people even realized. 
that I was weaving together a verse from Ephesians and something else. And I thought I need to do more of that because that vocabulary and that grammar and that way of speaking is, is important to us. So, there we go. Anything else? Yes? I just had a comment about what you said regarding knowing name their son Phineas. The same reason they don't name their son Nimrod. Yeah. But I, in Nimrod? Yes. Actually, I think I might have heard of a Nimrod one time. But anyway, okay. <laughs> Any, anything else before I close this in prayer? Yes, sir. Might have what? Which might lead you to the question, well, how close has he been to God? Yeah. That's the thing. I think that's the, the picture is, the picture is that the tabernacle's in big trouble because the priestly line has become faithless. And so it will be no surprise in a couple of chapters when we discover that the Ark of the Covenant is lost. Yep, so, yeah, yeah, so I, I, think, I think you're right. Okay, so would you pray with, anything else, Patty, today? Nope. Okay, pray with me. Gracious Lord, help us to, to see in these stories the truth about who you are, Help us to connect the dots. Help us to grasp that, that your full, the full revelation of who you are is Jesus. And, and it's in that context that we read even the very difficult portions of the Old Testament that come from so long ago. Just fill us with, with confidence and faith. May we be faithful people, not faithless people. May we love you with our whole heart. May we, may we love others, not just our friends and family, but people we don't even like. Um, help us to be ever truer disciples of Jesus Christ. For indeed, that's what we're about every day. All this we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.